Scripture reading for this morning for us is from 2 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Let's go before the Lord and pray. Our Father, I am so grateful to you today for your steadfast love. As I prayed before the service today, I'm so grateful to you that the heart you're about to reveal to us through an ancient story, a 2,900-year-old story, just reveals to us the heart of a God who is living and a God who is steadfast in love today, a God who is merciful today, a God who is kind today, a God who shapes his people into his image today. So, Father, today I pray that as we go back so far in time, I pray that we would encounter the living God, and I pray that the effect of today's message would be that we would become more like you. Oh, Father, let us leave here today with the desire to be like you, and let us leave here today with power from the Holy Spirit so that we can actually walk in that way. Father, I don't know what everybody's going through in the room right now. I don't know what everybody's facing, but I know that you have come here to meet with us today, and I ask you to meet every single person's needs, Father. I ask you to meet them right where they are and right where they're sitting, and I ask you now to use your word by the power of your spirit to speak. Thank you, Father, for what you'll do. You are great, and you are gracious, and so in Jesus' name, we give you our thanks. Amen. You may have heard of a man named John Newton. He was uh, born and raised and lived his life in the 1800s. He was raised by his mother who was a believer and who tried to show him the ways of the Lord. But unfortunately, when John Newton was about seven years old, his mother died. And rather than becoming like his mother, he became much more like his father. When he was only 11 years old, he took his his first voyage on a merchant ship. It was the first of six voyages, as, as even as a, a pre-teenager. But his time in that little job wasn't, uh, didn't last for very long because, and I quote from the stories about him, he was unsettled in his behavior and incapable of self-restraint. So he was quite a handful, even at 11 years old. Some years later, when he was in his late teens, he was forced to serve as a soldier in the Royal Navy. But that didn't last long either because he just couldn't handle the discipline of it. He couldn't handle the call to submission. And so he actually defected from the army. Not long after that, he was caught, he was put in irons, he was flogged, and he was brought up for sentencing. But he must have been a persuasive young man because somehow in the midst of sentencing, He actually persuaded the judge not to put him in prison, but instead to let him serve on a slave ship, which he did for many years to come. 
His experience on that first ship was not good. Life was very hard on the ship. It was hard in Africa. It was hard back in England. He often struggled to make ends meet, but none of that difficulty humbled his heart a single bit. He was a rascal. He was continuing in his sin. He was continuing in his rebellion. And in his own words, he said that he made it his study of how to tempt other people and how to seduce them into sin with him. So for John Newton, it wasn't enough to be a rebel. He had to invite others. He had to bring others off their path, maybe even with the Lord, so that they could rebel along with him. After serving on a couple of different slave ships and struggling for years just to make it, Newton was on his way back to England on a ship called the Greyhound. One night the ship was sailing uh, and it encountered a very severe storm, so severe that everybody on the ship thought that they would lose their lives, including John Newton. I don't know why he had been reading the book, but some, for some reason he had been reading a book called The Imitation of Christ by a guy named Thomas Akempis. And in that book, Thomas Akempis talks about the brevity of life. And he talks about the fact that none of us have control of our lives, that none of us know if we'll even be alive tomorrow. And this line of reasoning really gripped John Newton. He couldn't stop thinking about it. And now he finds himself in the middle of a storm and he knows that his odds are 50-50 at best of making it off that ship. He knows that he's probably about to die and his heart is gripped with fear. And in this moment, as he's contemplating life and contemplating what might come about, he remembers something his mother taught him. Proverbs 1, 25 through 26. And basically, those verses say... Because I called to you and you did not bother to listen to me, I also will laugh at the day of your calamity. In other words, I will not come to your aid. Since you have ignored me and pushed me away for so many years, I will not now come and just get you out of a messy situation that you got yourself into. That night, those words and that storm finally humbled this young man's heart. By the grace of God, he and his entire ship and his shipmates made it through that storm. They all survived. But much more importantly, John Newton bowed his knee to the Lord God and gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It took a lot to get to him, but God finally got to him. And on that night, he began the long process of being shaped into the image of Christ. And for him, it was a very long process. He continued to serve on slave ships. But as he read the Bible, his conscience began to really bother him. So he got off the slave ship and he got an office job, but still for the same slave trading company. His hope was to be a Christian influence in that place. But as the Lord would have it, he began to host a Bible study in his home in Liverpool. And the more that Bible study went along, he became influenced by the teachings of John Wesley and George Whittefield. And if you know anything about either of those guys, that ought to amaze you a little bit, because John Wesley is sort of the Arminian of Arminians. In fact, you wouldn't even know about Arminianism probably if it wasn't for John Wesley. And George Whittefield was like the Calvinist of Calvinists. These guys were theological debaters and very good friends. And... John Newton now was coming under the teaching of both of them. He ended up siding more with George Whittefield, but both of them influenced him so much that he, he got to the place in his life where he simply could not have anything more to do with the slave trade. He said that his heart shuddered at the whole thing and that he, he simply just couldn't have any part with it anymore. And so he resigned his job. Eventually, he became an ordained minister and he became the pastor of a little Anglican church in rural England. As he was serving there year upon year, a young guy came to his church named William Cooper, ended up staying there. 
William Cooper was a songwriter, and John Newton and William Cooper began to cooperate together, and every single week they would write a hymn for their Thursday evening prayer service. So every week, a fresh song. Sometimes they used an old tune, and they would just write new words, but one way or the other, every single week, they wrote a song together. Years later, they decided to collect a lot of those songs into a hymnal. They took 280 of the songs that Newton had written and about 70 of the songs that Cooper had written, and they published it in a hymnal that became very very widely used, and in fact, it included the most famous hymn that you've surely heard by John Newton called Amazing Grace. Even if you're a complete unbeliever in the United States of America, at least you have heard that song, Amazing Grace. That song was written for a Thursday night prayer meeting. Isn't that something to think about? That hymnal influenced a lot of people, including a young man named William Wilberforce. Have you heard of him? He spent his life trying to end the slave trade, and him and Newton became very close friends. In fact, Newton became so moved by what Wilberforce was up to that he wrote an entire book about his experience. It was called Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. And the reason he wrote it is because his heart was so overwhelmed by the grace and love of God in his own life, and his heart was so broken by the grief of the part he had played in this trade, that he determined to do anything he could do to bring it all to an end. He had to live for justice because he had received so much mercy from God. When he was old and frail and really should have retired, some people came and pressed him and said, sir, why don't you retire? And he, sa- he said to them, simply, it's this, I cannot stop. I cannot stop. And now I quote from him. He said, shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can still speak? Do you hear his heart? He said, I might be old, I might be frail, I might be able to to do, unable to do half the things I could do even 20 years ago, but if I can still speak, I must still fight for justice. Beloved, this was a man overwhelmed with mercy for other people, but I want us to understand something that he did not simply have a philosophical commitment to justice. John Newton had been overwhelmed by the steadfast love of God, and the proof of that overwhelm was the mercy that was pouring out of his life. The main thing that was happening in John Newton is that he wanted to be like his father, and now I mean his heavenly father, not his earthly father. As he witnessed the great amazing, overwhelming grace of God in his own life, he could not help but overflow into the lives of others. That is his story. That is his song. And it's King David's song as well. You may remember from last week that King David and his men were in exile because of sin that David had committed. And they were prepared to fight against David's own son and against his son's army, which was vast. And you may remember that by the grace of God, David and his men won a rousing victory against Absalom and his men, so that 20,000 Israelite soldiers died, and so that his son Absalom himself was killed in the midst of battle. You may remember that when King David heard the news of the death of his son, he began to grieve so deeply and so powerfully that it actually cast shame upon all of his men. They were essentially conquering heroes but they felt like their king was acting in such a way like he was a defeated king. And the way he was acting made them feel so shameful that the Bible says they marched back into the city with their heads hung like men who had run from a battle, like cowards. They felt like cowards even though they were victors. 
their feelings. I think as we press into them and, and put ourselves in their shoes, their feelings are understandable. But what they didn't know was that besides weeping over the death of Absalom, David was powerfully grieving because he knew that he was ultimately responsible for everything that had just transpired. He knew that 11 years before this, he had set aside the words of God. He had despised the words of God. He had done what was evil in God's sight and what he knew was evil in God's sight. And David knew that because of that, he was under the hot discipline of the Lord and David knew that the hot discipline of the Lord was ultimately was what would explain everything that had just happened. David knew that in some way, he caused the death of his son. He knew that he had caused the death of 20,000 Israelite soldiers whom he had commanded for so many years, many of whom he probably knew at a personal level. Beloved, there was a lot going on in David more than met the eye, that's for sure. As I mentioned last week, the author doesn't tell us exactly what happened here, but it does tell us that Joab came into David and rebuked him and commanded that he go talk to his men because Joab knew that if David did not help his men understand what was going on, they were all gonna forsake him out there in that desert. And the Bible does not tell us what David said to his men, oh, how I wish it would tell us what he said, but it doesn't. It simply tells us that David gathered with his guys and it paints the picture of him standing there with them and then the story changes. But we can assume from the fact that they stay with David that he said whatever he had to say to persuade them. He said whatever he had to say to help them understand his heart. He said whatever he had to say to keep his men unified and marching forward together. There was much more going on, beloved, than met the eye. David was weeping for his sin. David was grieving for the loss of his son, yes, but at a much more profound level, David was weeping for the whole entire story of what's actually happening here. There was more going on than his men knew, but I want to tell us this. While David was grieving over his sin, the Lord was working for him. While David was grieving for his sin, the Lord was working all things together for his good, even intensely painful things like the death of Absalom and like the death of these 20,000 soldiers and like the difficulties that were arising inside of his own faithful men. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 8, you will see there that the author tells us that after the battle, the Israelites returned home. And then beginning in verse nine, the author tells us a little bit about the conversation that was happening inside of Israel in the wake of Absalom's death. And basically what Israel was saying to one another was something like this. They were saying, listen, for whatever reasons we had, we chose to go with Absalom over David. But now David has defeated Absalom, Absalom is dead, and now what are we gonna do? Who is going to be our king? We cannot survive in this jungle of a nation without a king. Who will be our king? David is the one over the years who's rescued us from all of our enemies. In fact, he is the one who rescued us from the hands of the Philistines who had so powerfully dominated us for generations that they even controlled the industry in our country. He's the one who delivered us. So why are we not talking about bringing David back as king? We should bring David back as king. This is a summary of the debate that was going on inside of Israel. Not everybody was persuaded by this logic, but most people were persuaded 
And the people of Israel had decided to, in fact, extend an invitation to David and bring him back into the country. Do you see, while David was weeping for his sin, the Lord was at work for him. Do you see that? While David was grieving over everything that was happening, God was stirring among the people of Israel. This was not just a random conversation, beloved. This was a conversation that was being guided, that was being directed by the Lord God himself. While David was grieving for his sin, the Lord, his God, his father was working for him. Now, when David heard that Israel wanted to bring him back, surely that was good news to him. But do you remember what tribe David was from? David was from the tribe of Judah, wasn't he? He was not from the northern ten tribes. He was from the one tribe of Judah. He was from that one tribe that stayed faithful to him when he was running from Saul for those ten years. He was from the one tribe who contained all the people who had provided for his needs for over a decade. He was from the one tribe who had first made him king where he reigned for, I think, seven years in the city of Hebron, just over the tribe of Judah. This was his people. This was where he belonged, and so he wrote to them. He extended an olive branch to them, if you will, to try to make peace between them. If you put yourself in their shoes, you have to understand that the tribe of Judah probably feared David at this point. They, too, had forsaken their king. They, too, had shifted their support from David to Absalom. They may have had a number of reasons for doing this, but as far as fleshly things go at least, they shouldn't have done this. They betrayed the king who had been so good to them. And now the one that they chose as king had not only been roundly defeated, but he had been killed in battle. And now what were they going to do? They had betrayed their own flesh and blood. They had betrayed the guy who, who ruled over them for many years. They betrayed the guy who just defeated a massive army in Israel and who could surely take them out if he wished. If I was one of the elders of Judah, I would have been trembling at the thought of what David might do next. But David had been overwhelmed with the steadfast love and mercy of God for all these years, beloved. David had a front row seat to watch how God both disciplined him and loved him at the same time. And he was so moved, he was so overwhelmed, he was so changed by what he had seen God do in his own life that his heart was for mercy and not for war. And so he wrote to them through two emissaries, through two allies of his, the high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and to the elders of Judah, he simply said this. He said, brothers, you are just that. You are my brothers. You are my bone and you are my flesh. We are one. And no matter what has happened, shall I now come against you? Should you not be the first ones to bring me back into the land of Israel? Do you hear what David is saying? He's saying, I know that you betrayed me, but I am not going to come to you with the sword. I will not come with a heart of revenge. I will not come to kill anybody. I will come in peace. My heart is for mercy and not for war. And as I thought about this more and more, you know what else I hear in David's heart? I hear humility and repentance. I don't know exactly what was going on in Israel, but for all of these people in Judah and in Israel to turn against David and choose Absalom over David, there had to be things going on that just weren't right in the way David was leading the country. And I think David saw that they had some legitimate reasons for turning against him. Maybe they shouldn't have done it that way. But I think David saw that they did it for something, and I think in this little message was his heart saying, I'm sorry. I am sorry. 
and I want to come back and be your king. You are my bone, you are my flesh, I am your bone, I am your flesh. Let's allow God to reconcile us together. Why not bring me back? Along with that message, David sent another message, and he called out a guy in particular. He called out one man. His name was Amasa. Amasa had been appointed by Absalom as the commander of the army of Israel, okay? So this is the guy who just commanded the army that tried to kill David up in the northeast. He failed. He lost 20,000 of his men, but he's the commander of that army. And believe me, more than anybody in Israel, this guy is fearing for his life right now. And not only is that the guy's position, do you know who this guy was? You look into the Bible and carefully study here and there. Turns out Amasa was David's stepson. Amasa was the child of Abigail, who was the wife of Nabal. You remember that story? Ethan preached that Sunday about Nabal and all these things that transpired with David. Well, Nabal had a son and his name was Amasa. And now Amasa was over the army of people who just tried to kill David and lost. And he was fearing for his life. And not only was he David's stepson and Absalom's stepbrother, he was also Joab's first cousin's child, which I had to look this up because I'm bad at these things. But this makes him Joab's first cousin once removed. What I'm trying to point out to you is that this was not just a political betrayal. Amasa turned on his family. Do you see that? He turned on his stepfather. He turned on his own uncle or whatever Joab would be back to him. He turned on his family. He was a a betrayer, so to speak. And David wanted to send a loud and clear message that nobody would pay for their lives for what they had done. So he says to Amasa, listen to me, not only will I spare your life, but will you not in fact become the commander over my army in place of Joab? He just gave him a high post. He made him the chief of the, of the, of the generals of his army. He just made him the man. Joab has been serving in that position for so many years and Joab's out, this guy's in. Now if you remember from last week, do you remember who was the one who actually killed David's son Absalom? Remember it was Joab? So I think that David in part removed Joab from his long-held position because this was partially punishment for what he had done to his son. But personally, as I've thought about the story, I just think that much more than that, David is extending an olive branch to Amasa in the sight of all of Israel to say, if you bring me back as king, I will not come back with the sword. I will come back with a heart full of mercy. I will come back with a heart full of peace. Many of the scholars that I read this week, when they're talking about the different moves that David is making, they analyze them in political terms, and some of them felt like he was just trying to be a a wise, and even some of them feel a crafty politician here. But I honestly just think that sometimes when a person studies the Bible in an academic environment, they miss the entire point of the Bible. This is not a story of a politician who's trying to set himself up to have a better life when he gets back home. This is the story of a man whose heart has been so overwhelmed with the steadfast love of God, with the grace of God, that he cannot help but act with mercy toward people that he could rightly be vengeful toward. Do you see that? We've been walking with David closely for months now, haven't we? And I think probably it won't be hard for you to believe that what I'm saying is true. What we're seeing is the heart of a man who's been transformed so that he longs to be like his heavenly father so that he longs to be merciful in the way that God has been merciful to him. By the grace of God, 
his people's hearts were persuaded. And Judah sent word to him and said, David, we want you to be our king, so come home and bring all of your servants with you. Let's make peace. And because he received that word, David began the journey from Maha Naim, where he had been across the Jordan and way up to the north. They now began to travel down the east coast of the Jordan River, and the people of Judah traveled from where they were to the east to meet him at the Jordan River. And the Bible says that the people of Judah waited for him at, at Gilgal. Now, if that city name doesn't mean much to you, circle it in your Bible and go study it later. That name should mean something to you. The city of Gilgal is the place where Joshua brought all the people of Israel and renewed the covenant before God when Israel first entered into the promised land. So David, having received an amazing covenant promise from God in 2 Samuel 7 and then done some really stupid evil things so that he's now in exile out of the land of promise because of the discipline of the Lord, he's now being brought back into the promised land. He's being brought back into the kind mercy of God, and he's going to cross right where Israel first crossed over the Jordan River, and he's going to go right to the city where the covenant was renewed. I tell you that not just to help you say, wow, that's some insightful geographical stuff there, Pastor, but I'm trying to help you see that God is at work here, beloved. These are not random details. What's happening is God is saying, in spite of your sin, David, I am going to be faithful to you, and I am going to be faithful to my people. The covenant is still valid, my word is still good, and I will show myself to be a faithful God. I will reconcile my people at the very place where we renewed the covenant so long ago. Beloved, this is a story about the steadfast love of God being poured out upon his people. And I really pray that we'll listen. Sometimes it's hard for us to get back into some other world and make the jump back into our world. But I'll tell you in a couple seconds what this means in our world. God will be faithful to us too. Amen? God will keep his promises to us, beloved. I don't care the chaos in our country or the chaos in your own life. God will be faithful all the way to the end. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, maybe we're meditating on a 2,900-year-old story, but we're meditating on the living God who's here with us today. Beloved, God is faithful. That's what this story is about. And I believe that David was very much conscious of this fact. Other people are making the movements that they're making. I don't know what they were thinking, but I am convinced that David saw all of this and knew that it was the steadfast love of God and the powerful hand of God that was at work. He saw it and he knew what he was seeing. And so now we hear three stories that help demonstrate what's happening in the heart of this king. First of all, as David was traveling down the coast to, and Judah was traveling out to the Jordan River to meet him, there was a man who decided to join with Judah and to bring with him a thousand men. He was a man from the tribe of Benjamin, a man from the tribe of Saul. He was the man who had cursed David when David was going out into exile. You remember him? His name was Shimei. He was throwing dust up in the air, throwing rocks at David, shouting lies, hurling curses. And he decides now that he's got to get out to see the king because he is fearing for his life. That he brought a thousand men with him made me wonder if he was going there to fight, but very quickly we see this is like a a love offering. This is a peace offering. This is a way of him saying, listen, not only am I sorry, but my whole tribe is sorry that I'm such a, a dope. So as soon as he sees David, 
The Bible says in, in the Hebrew, is very graphic here, basically it says he flew down onto his face. He flew onto his face. This guy is fearing for his life and he said, oh please king, do not hold against me the things that I did when you were going into exile for I know that I have sinned against you. I know that I have sinned against you and now I plead with you. I plead with you to be merciful to me. I wanted to be the very first one from my tribe to come out and meet you. So now, get the picture. This isn't happening in a private room. This is happening in the hearing of many, many people. The plea of a man who probably does deserve to die was just put on the table and now it's just hanging in the air. What is David going to do? What's he going to say? And what will come of Shimei? As was the case when they were going into exile, Joab's brother Abishai spoke up and basically said, let's kill him. David looked at him in the hearing of everybody and said, what have I to do with you? Which is a way of saying, what do I have to do with your spirit? What? Who said that I needed you to help me adjudicate this case? Who said that I needed you to help me render judgment? Who said that I needed your counsel? I do not need your counsel. Listen here, David says. Shall anyone, not just Shimei, it's a very important statement. Realize these words are coming out of the mouth of a man who has power over millions of people, okay? He's making a pronouncement now that's going to affect many lives. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? Shall anyone, not just this guy, but anyone. Do I not know that I am now again the king over all of Israel? The clear answer to David's question was no. No one in Israel was going to die that day. And from our point of view as the readers of this story, as people have, who have been meditating on it so carefully for these months, we should get the point that this is not simply the story of a king who's got a merciful heart. This is not the story of a king who is unwise and doesn't really know what to do about his enemies. This is the story of a man who has been overwhelmed with the steadfast love of God and now is acting in mercy toward other people. You see, when the steadfast love of God captures a man's heart, one way you know it is how he treats everybody else. And in this case, the mercy of David was a sure display that God had captured his heart. And so with that, David spoke a pardon over Shimei, and he spoke that pardon with an oath. Later, we're going to see, in about six or seven weeks, we're going to see that David had more to say about this man, and when we get there, I'll explain to you what I think about why he said what he said later. But for now, I believe that David was not only wanting to show mercy to one man, but he was wanting to, to send a message to an entire people that God has been gracious to me and therefore I will be gracious to you. I will not come back into Israel with a sword. I will come back into Israel with a heart for mercy. The steadfast love of God was overflowing from his heart, beloved, and David longed to be like his father. He longed to imitate his heavenly father. That's what this story is about. Story number two, Mephibosheth. You remember him? Mephibosheth, his name is fun to say. You can learn it and impress people at parties. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Ishbosheth is a little harder name to say. Mephibosheth, not that hard to say. He was Saul's grandson, right? He was Jonathan's son. He was the son of David's very close friend. And you'll notice if you look in verse 25, you read carefully, you'll notice that he actually met David in Jerusalem and not out by the river. 
Surely he wanted to get out by the river, but he was lame in his feet. You remember, he was a paraplegic. He could not walk. He could not get to the river, so he met David where he could, in Jerusalem, which is where Mephibosheth lived. Now, the reason I bring this up is to say that the author is actually fast-forwarding the story a little bit because we're going to end up back at the river in just a couple minutes. And I just want you to understand that the author feels this story is more important than the next one, so just give him a little grace. He fast-forwards. We're now in Jerusalem, and David is getting settled into the palace, and when he does, Mephibosheth comes to him. And when Mephibosheth, when David sees Mephibosheth, I think he immediately begins to wonder if the story that he heard about him is true. You may remember that when he was going into exile, Mephibosheth's uh, servant, Ziba, came and told David that this guy had betrayed him and that he wanted to seize the throne. Do you remember that? Mephibosheth, Ziba said, wanted to get everything that belonged to Saul, including this, the, the, the throne of Israel, and therefore Ziba had, Ziba had gone out to David to side with him over Mephibosheth. But now the guy walks in the room and David's got to be scratching his head and saying, huh, I wonder if that story's true. Because as soon as he saw him, it was impossible not to notice that the guy looked like a homeless guy who hadn't had a bath in a few months. Because he hadn't. The Bible tells us that all the time David was gone, he never took care of his feet, which is a way of saying he never took a bath. He never trimmed his beard, so his hair is just going crazy. And it says he never even washed his clothes. We don't know how long David was in, de- in exile. It wasn't years, but probably it was a couple months. Can you imagine living with someone who hadn't taken a shower or even washed their clothes in a couple months? Can you imagine that? When he walked in the room, he didn't look so good, and he didn't smell so good. And David starts to scratch his head, I'm sure, wondering, immediately wondering, huh, I wonder if the story is true. So he asks him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with me? And Mephibosheth quickly tells him, listen, I wanted to go, king, but you know I can't do it myself. And Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. He deceived me. And he went out to you and he slandered me to you, but none of that is true. I have, my heart has always been yours and my heart has always wanted only what you want. You can see, I haven't even taken care of myself since you left. As far as my household goes, me and all my brothers and all my relatives, we were as good as dead before you, but you showed incredible mercy and kindness to me, King. You, you treated me like a royal son when you should have taken my life. So who am I to say anything about any of this? And David just stops him right there and said, all right, I made my decision. And he says to him, I'm going to split the land in half. I'm going to give half to Mephibosheth and I'm going to give half to Ziba. That is my decision. As soon as Mephibosheth heard those words, he said, oh, king, I don't care about the land at all. I could care less about it. Give it all to Ziba. What I care about is that you're back. I'm grateful to you. I love you. I care about you. I'm happy for you. You're the one that I want. Give him all the land. When David heard those words from him, he made an amazing decision to me. He punished neither of them. He had just found out the one who was lying, by the way. I I think that David's decision to split the land in half was a very wise decision. Like Solomon after him, David wanted to see who was telling the truth. So he tells him, hey, let's just split the land and let's see who reacts in what way. When Mephibosheth shows that he could care less about the physical property, he also shows that he's the one that's telling the truth. David had just unearthed the liar, and the liar was Ziba. And you know what David did? He showed mercy to them both. He showed mercy to them both. 
We don't know the particulars of what happened to either one of them because from this point forward, you never hear about Ziba again, and Mephibosheth is only mentioned one more time, I believe in chapter 21 or maybe chapter 22. But what we do know is that the king of Israel is being incredibly merciful to people who probably deserve judgment because his heart had been captured by the mercy of God. That's what's going on here, beloved. This is not just a court case. This is not just the story of a wise king. This is the story of a man who is overwhelmed with the grace of God in his life and is now being merciful to other people. One more story. If we back up the tape a little bit, we're back before David took off from Mahanaim down this side of the Jordan River. As he's getting ready to travel down the river, the Bible says that a man named Barzillai came to see him. You may remember Barzillai because a couple weeks ago, Pastor Kevin brought him up and mentioned that his name was a real manly name. You remember that? In fact, if any of you are about to have boys, you might consider Barzillai, or then maybe again, you might not consider Barzillai as a, a, a name to name the kid. But the kid, th- this guy's name means Iron Man. So Pastor Kevin wasn't so far off. This is a manly, manly name. Barzillai was Iron Man. And not only was he Iron Man, he was generous man, like in a big, big way. All the time David and his men were in exile, the Bible says that he provided for David's men because he was wealthy and he was generous. Now he came out to the king and he wanted to greet the king, he wanted to thank the king, he wanted to send the king off and escort him down the Jordan River. David could well have just said thank you and been on his way, but David's heart was eager to overflow with the mercy of God. So he says to Barzillai, he says, Listen, I want you to come to Jerusalem with me and I'm gonna set you up there and I'm gonna pour blessings on you like you have never seen. Please let me do this for you. Barzillai, though, was 80 years old and he didn't wanna go. He told David, first of all, if you give me all those blessings, what good will it do to me? I'm so old that I can't really taste anything. I can't really see anything. I can't really enjoy anything anymore. I've lived a good life, but I'm old and I don't want to go. And he said, beside that, I want to die in my hometown and I want to be buried near my parents. So please, just let me stay and take this servant of mine and heap your blessings upon him. And by the way, that servant was probably Barzillai's son. David heard the words of his friend and granted his request. He said, no problem. You stay here. I will take your servant. I will take your son. I will take him with me and I will bless his socks off. And David did just that. Together, they crossed over the Jordan River. Together, they made their journey back to Jerusalem. And for the rest of his life, this servant, this son, Chimham was his name, he received overwhelming blessings for the rest of his life. Why? Because David was so grateful for what God had done for him. You see, in Barzillai's kindness, David saw the Lord's heart. David knew that the reason this man had come to provide for him is because the Lord had sent him. Do you see that, beloved? This this isn't just a story of a man returning kindness for kindness. This is the story of a man who sees the hand of God in his circumstances and then longs to overflow with blessing and mercy toward other people. That's what this is about. It's about a man who has been captured by the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, at the end of the chapter, you'll see there that a skirmish breaks out between Judah and the northern tribes of Israel, but I'm going to leave that to next week because that becomes the setup for chapter 20. And for now, I just really want us to stay laser focused on this point. I hope you can see in every single part of this chapter up to this point that the point is this. David was overflowing with mercy and justice and blessings because he had just received so much grace from the Lord. 
he had been overwhelmed by the steadfast love of the Lord. This is not the story of a man who's being nice and kind. This is the story of a man who's trying to learn what it means to be like his father. Although he had every opportunity to execute one of his enemies, Shimei, and although nobody would have blamed him for doing that, David's heart wanted to be like his father, and so he chose mercy over just blind justice or, or you know, unmerciful justice. Although David could well have executed Mephibosheth and even Ziba for what they had done, easily, and nobody would have blamed him. David never even had to ask this man, why didn't you come with me? He could have just issued the orders. Nobody would have questioned him. But that wasn't David's heart, beloved. He longed to be like his father, and he longed to overflow with the mercy of the heart of his father. Although David could have just returned home without giving thanks to anybody, even Barzillai, or he could at least have just said thank you and been on his way. His heart was to do more than that. And so he literally poured a lifetime of blessings upon his son just to say thank you, just to say thank you. This is a story of a man, beloved, whose heart has been radically transformed by the steadfast love of God. When the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God captures our hearts, the mercy of the Lord will tend to overflow from our lives. It's just the bottom line. When the steadfast love of the Lord moves from a theological or biblical subject that you know about to something that you actually experience, it radically changes the way you relate to other people. It just does. In fact, the way you relate to other people becomes a sign and a symbol of the root of the steadfast love of the Lord inside your heart. We're going to see next week that when a person is overwhelmed by the steadfast love of God, clemency is not always the right response to every situation. Sometimes a person who has been overwhelmed by the steadfast love of the Lord has to come against people who must be stopped. And we're going to see next week that David is going to do just that. But even then, that is the last resort for the person who's been persuaded by the mercy of God, who's been gripped by the steadfast love of God. For that person, they are always first bent toward mercy and then later toward justice if they must and later toward sharp justice if they really, really have to be like that. So, for my part, as we look at this chapter today, I think that the lesson is not go out there and be nice to people. Just go out there and be like David. Be nice to people. Be merciful to whoever you can be merciful to. Rather, I think that for us, the lesson today is this. Contemplate the steadfast love of God in your life. Gain eyes to see how God has been faithful to you. Gain eyes to see how God has been merciful to you, kind to you, a a provider for you. And then learn to be like your father. That's the lesson. Look to the steadfast love of your father and then learn to live your life like your father. This is essentially the story the, the, the lesson is essentially about imitating God by the power of God. This is what happened in David's life. This is what happened in John Newton's life. John Newton did not fight against slavery because of some sort of philosophical commitment to justice. Beloved, God captured his heart on a slave ship 
and then transformed his heart over many years until he could do nothing more than write a song like Amazing Grace. He could do nothing more than write a book like Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. He could do nothing more than to work until his dying day to release people from slavery. His story is the story of a man who was overwhelmed by the faithfulness of God in Christ and who had to pour out his life for other people. And as it was for him, as it was for David, so it is for us. So I don't know how many of you will take me up on this challenge, but as I was praying about this last Wednesday, I just thought I might challenge you to take a, if you have a journal, that's great. If you don't, just grab a notepad, go somewhere and be with the Lord and list out ways that you have seen the faithfulness of God, the steadfast love of God, the mercy of God in your life. Don't stop until you've written like 25 things. There, there's 25,000 things, but keep writing until you see more and more and more. And the point of this exercise is this. If you will see, if you will learn to comprehend how the steadfast love of God is actually manifesting in your life, you will naturally grow in the desire to be merciful to others. It's an issue of overflowing. And I pray that God will help each of us as we meditate on that. So again, in one brief sentence, the message for today is this. Receive the Lord's love and overflow with his mercy. That's it. Receive his love and overflow with his mercy. Go and learn what it means to be like our Father. And Father, we do pray for your help in that. We thank you for the story of John Newton. We thank you for the story of David. We thank you for how he treated Judah and Israel. We thank you for how he treated Shimei. We thank you for how he treated Mephibosheth and Ziba. We thank you for how he treated Barzillai and his servant, probably his son. We thank you for so clearly demonstrating before us today what it looks like when a man's heart is gripped by your steadfast love. And I pray, Father, that as we do reflect on these things, you would help us to see how you have been personally steadfast and faithful and merciful to us. And I pray that as we see that, we would be changed into your image. Oh God, please do this work among us. We're so desperate for eyes to see, Lord. We're so desperate for power to follow. And so we pray that you would help us. And I pray this with joy, Father, because I know that you're eager to answer that prayer for anybody who will pursue you in this way. And so, Father, we give you our thanks for what you will do through this word in the mighty, the matchless, the merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.